If you go to the Middle East and if you go to Israel and the touristy kinds of shops, you'll see, uh, you'll start seeing the same t-shirts over and over again. Um, Guns and Moses, um, Pink Freud, things like this. I, I'm a t-shirt fan. So there's one shirt that you see quite often and it says something like, I swam in the med and the dead and the red. And I have swam, or should it be swum, I'm not sure. Uh, I have swam in the med and the red and the dead, but I don't have a t-shirt. But on my bucket list, something I've never done, is I would love to take a Mediterranean cruise and end in Rome. I haven't been able to justify it yet financially, um, but I'm working on justification. Uh, here, here's my justification. It would be apostolic. Right? How, how do you argue with that? How's my wife going to argue with that? It, honey, it would make me apostolic. Because on the Apostle Paul's bucket list was to take a Mediterranean cruise to Rome. And we're going to learn about that in the ending chapters in the book of Acts. Acts 21 to 28. Acts 21 to 28. The Apostle Paul, his bucket list, if you will, a lot more sanctified than Pat's bucket list. He's not going to observe history. He's going to make history. Let's be more poignant as theologians. He's going to make redemptive history by taking a Mediterranean cruise to Rome because he's been called by God to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as was promised in Acts 1 to the ends of the earth. And in the first century... In other words, the ends of the earth would be to take the gospel to the Gentiles and one way to make sure that it goes to all the Gentiles, at least phase one, if you will, is to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to Rome. So I'm, I'm getting closer to taking a Mediterranean cruise, but I'm going to go observe the history. He's going to make the history and we're going to watch the history being made. So as you're finding Acts 21, if you're still needing to find it, let me just remind you of how important it is that he, by divine appointment, get the gospel to Rome. In Acts 1.8, the familiar passage in Acts, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we typically rush to judgment and think, well, that's, that's us. Well, yes, in effect, by extension, it's still happening. But initially, let's put it this way, an initial fulfillment, if we can put it that way, would be getting it to Rome. And so we've seen Peter in the early chapters of the book of Acts. We've seen this unfolding and happening and being fulfilled. But now we come to the closing sex section in Acts, and it's all about getting the gospel to Rome. It's all about getting it to the ends of the earth. For example, another text, Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. That's important. The godless, not the Jews, but the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And it's a parallelism. If you get it to the Gentiles, you're getting it to the ends of the earth. Strategically, in the first century, that means you got to get it to Rome. One other text from the Old Testament that's going to say essentially the same thing, a little bit differently. Isaiah 49, verse 6. 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Listen to this carefully. I will make you as a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we just read them backward in order, right? This, this is a messianic prophecy that this is going to happen. And then we're seeing it fulfilled, promised by Jesus. Okay, now you as my apostles, now you as my ambassadors. Gospel starts here, then it goes there, and then to the ends of the earth. Now it's going to extend out to all the Gentiles. So it is strategic. It is vital. It is important. It's no wonder the apostle Paul is so focused on making sure no matter what, as the baton, baton has been passed to him, he's going to get the gospel to Rome. And so we are making our way to Rome, if you will, on that kind of Mediterranean cruise. We're going to do Acts 21 today. It's going to be rudely interrupted because Acts 21 and Acts 22 go together, but that's how we're going to do things today. Acts 21, we're going to get closer to Rome, though we won't quite get there yet. Acts 21 verse 1 says, and when we had parted from them, that would be the Ephesian elders we learned about last time in Miletus, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So island hopping, if you will, making their way toward Jerusalem, and then it will be to Rome. Verse 3 says, when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria. That would be ancient Syria. We're actually now back in the land of, of Israel and landed at Tyre. Remember Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament? Jesus also talked about Tyre and Sidon. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. So back in Israel, it just seems like Dr. Luke is recording the travel itinerary, but it's important that he does this. He's tracing the, the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey, and now he's back in the land of Israel, strategically so. Then verse 4 says, And having sought out the disciples, this is typical, we've seen this again and again, find the followers of Jesus so we can have fellowship, so we can strengthen, so that we can be mutually encouraged. Find the disciples. We stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Are they correct? Should he not go to Jerusalem? Well, says the Spirit led them to say that. Maybe they're, they're partially correct. We've got to read between the lines here in light of what we're about to read. Um, bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem. That part's true. And the Holy Spirit, reading between the lines, has informed them that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. So their conclusion is, don't go. Their conclusion, their spin, if you will, on the Holy Spirit's information is, the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to go there. But in light of the rest of the passages, that's not it. The Holy Spirit's been telling everyone, including Paul, it's not going to go well. It's going to be troublesome when you're there. So they're, they're making a, a false conclusion based upon true revelation. Because in Acts 19, 
I know none of us have great memories around here. At least I don't. I shouldn't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. Acts 19.21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. I've got to go to Jerusalem so that I can get to Rome. Holy Spirit has led me to conclude this. And so either the Holy Spirit's contradicting himself, which isn't very likely, wink, wink, understatement of the day, Or they're just drawing wrong conclusions from what the Holy Spirit is leading them to know. Because Acts 20, verse 22, verses 22 to 23 say this. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So what do we do? We get on Yelp to figure out where the good restaurants are when we're going to go to a new city. Uh, He gets on Yelp to see what the prison food is like. (laughs) So that's why I said that they're, they're not right. You can see why they would say what they say. The Holy Spirit is indicating to him, I would have to read to them as well, it's not going to be good. And they love Paul, so they say, my interpretation of the information is, he doesn't want you to go there. No, they don't want him to go there. But God certainly wants him to go there. It's their fallible response to infallible revelation. Verse 5 says, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So love, encouragement, fellowship. It's no wonder they didn't want him to go and be harmed. Verse 7 says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, or maybe we should say, for the for the sake of those of you who are going to Israel in a few months, Caesarea, because that's what they'll say there, and you'll think, what's Caesarea? It's Caesarea, but since it's named after Caesar, like so many other things, do you think Caesarea, because everything's made to honor the great king, Caesar, don't confuse this Caesarea with the other Caesarea, which would be Caesarea Philippi. It's even hard for me to say it, but it has the right effect. Not Caesarea Philippi, different place. This is Caesarea by the sea. This is the sea town. This is Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea. One of the coolest places you'll ever go. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Anybody remember him? Hmm who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Acts chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Remember when Stephen is martyred? Oh, there was that man named Philip who was one of the first, people call him one of the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. It's that Philip. So now all of these years have passed. Now he's married if he wasn't married then. And now he's got a family we're about ready to see. He's the one, remember, who preached the gospel to the African eunuch, the eunuch from Africa. Remember Acts chapter 8. It's that guy. But now, by now, we've got some time passed. And so now he's living in Caesarea. So they have fellowship with this Philip. And notice this curious fact. Verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Hmm. How are the girls? Just fine. Growing up too fast. On the honor roll. Playing sports. And, uh, well, uh, 
they prophesy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. That, that, oh, that's different. <laughs> you know, sometimes supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit, they know the future by special revelation from God. Huh. I'll just throw that in there for good measure. Well, maybe it is a reminder to us of what it did say back in Acts chapter 2. I like Luke with his sometimes seemingly out-of-nowhere details. But remember back in Acts chapter 2, it talked about the last days. People say, I wonder when the last days will come. Well, the last days, actually, according to the book of Hebrews, came when Jesus came the first time. And we've been living in the last days for a long time. But there's this unique time during the book of Acts, and it says this, Acts 2.17 And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Oh, yep. Let me just include this detail. This is what we're talking about here. This is an Acts 2 promise, and you know what? It's a reality. Let's move on to verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. This is kind of weird. This is like Ezekiel weird. This is like Old Testament prophet weird. Okay? So he's going to visually show what he's prophesying. And said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Here's what awaits you. And we're going to see that Agabus is right in his prophecy. Verse 12, when we heard this, Luke is including himself. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. I like it that Luke is honest and he's like, well, those guys are dumb, but I actually know. I actually think it, it, it helps with authenticity. I was part of the same group. I love Paul. I don't want him to go. I don't want this to happen to him. 13 says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? I'm on a mission to do this. I have to do this. I want to do this. It's great. I, it's, it's what I'll do because I love other human beings. It's what I do because I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I, my trust is in the one who conquered ultimate death for me. What do I have to fear? You're breaking my heart, people. <laughs> I got to do this. I'm willing to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And remember, in an older world, name is significant. In the name of the Lord Jesus, it's expressing his person, who he is, and what he's accomplished. Remember Matthew chapter 1? I was a broken record when we studied Matthew. Name him Jesus because, please remember, (laughs) 
He will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus because it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers, right? Not just temporary deliverance, but ultimate deliverance from even ultimate condemnation and ultimate death. And so if he's the one who's commissioned me and he commissioned Paul to go and do this and his spirit has indicated to me, to me clearly that in order to fulfill what was promised in Acts 1.8, I've got to go to Jerusalem because by way of Jerusalem, I'll get to Rome. I got to do this. I'm absolutely going to do this. I would give my life for this. I have nothing to fear. He doesn't have a martyr complex, but he's willing to be a martyr for the further progress of the gospel. Are we on verse 14? Here's a great verse. I don't even mind it if you take it out of context. I don't really mean that. So many verses are taken out of context. And here's one that you, you could almost get away with it. Verse 14 says, and since he would not, uh, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased, we stopped and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You could Right? That's hard to take out of context. It actually could. I thought of some examples. But since we're so fond of taking verses out of context in our culture, maybe that'd be a good place to start. Right? I want God's will to be done. God's will is what's ultimate. God's will is everything. It's always what's best. And so they, they, they concede. You know what? At the end of the day, if this is God's will and Paul, the apostle, is so bent on it being God's will, you know what? May the will of the Lord be done. This is good. Apparently, as hard as it's going to be, they acquiesce. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Two important things before we move on uh, that I'll mention. The, the us with Luke there again is important. And I realize that you, that's just a true general statement, but think about this for a moment. It is important that Luke, the narrator, Luke, the writer, is there in Jerusalem with the fellow believers, even from an apologetic vantage point, for a, a defense of the faith vantage point. Because if he goes there and meets and spends time with first century believers, some of them would have been eyewitnesses to very important things. Important things like the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Like the crucifixion of Jesus. Like the bodily historic resurrection of Jesus. Like the ascension of Jesus. Live to see it and tell about it. And so all it does is bolster and strengthen his accounting of volume one, Luke, volume two, Acts. Got to spend time there with first century eyewitnesses. Another important thing about this passage is where it says, look there at the, at the end in verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. That's significant because Paul on this third missionary journey, has been recruiting some of his converts along the way to help him to be part of the ministry team, if you will. And some of them have been what kind of people starts with a G? Gentiles. So they, here's Paul and his crew, Paul and his team, and the brethren, the believers in Jerusalem, by and large Jewish believers. It says they 
received them. They received them gladly. That's significant. Because the gospel, as we know, is the power of God for the Jews and also for the Gentiles. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Also for the Greeks. It's also important because Ephesians 2.14 says that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, the dividing wall of hostility through Christ, it says in Ephesians 2.14, has been demolished. It's been torn down. So now they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision as well. It would be another good passage. So now we used to, if we're Jews, before we were converted, uh, oftentimes, maybe when we're at our worst, would have seen Gentiles as subhuman. At our best, they're unclean spiritually. We would never call them spiritual siblings. And they're doing that now. That's important. That's growth. That's progress. Then in verse 18, we read these words. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So remember James from, this is James, the half brother of Jesus. Remember Jesus had half brothers, Mary, uh, virgin conception with Jesus But then Jesus had brothers. Matthew 13 names James as one of Jesus' brothers. Okay? So this is that James. It's also the James we learned about in Acts 15. A key leader in the first century church. Remember we called it the Jerusalem Council. Where important decisions needed to be made about Gentiles. And do you need to become a Jew and observe the Mosaic law in order to be saved if you're a Gentile? The conclusion at the leadership of James and others was absolutely not. And James is this James, Jerusalem Council James. 19 says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. I I love the deliberateness. Okay, here's what happened here. And, And here were their names, perhaps. And here's what happened here. And here were their names, perhaps. And I'm saying here were their names just to get the fact, to capture the idea. He's giving the details. He's giving the details. Why? Because it's so extraordinary. It's so amazing. Gentile people, godless, unclean, spiritual dogs as the Jews may have formerly thought of them. You know what? They're being converted. Same gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me tell you about how great it is to tell people that their sins can be forgiven if they trust in the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's the one who took the punishment. He's the one who absorbed the condemning wrath of God. He's the one who was raised from the dead to give new life to them. He's the one who by doing so reconciles all different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. I got to give you the details. Amazing. And notice what happens. This is what believers do when they hear about other people becoming believers. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God. God is great. God is amazing. God is extraordinary. God and God alone should be praised. How could this ever possibly happen apart from God doing it? That's what they're doing. When you hear about people becoming Christians, children of the devil, the Bible would actually say in Ephesians chapter 2, and they become children, not children of darkness anymore, but children of light, children of God. Does it cause you to say, God be praised. God is great. God is amazing. 
That's what believers do. That's what they're doing. It's special. It's the greatest miracle ever. The new birth. You're dead in trespasses and sins and God made us alive together with Him. Ephesians chapter 2. They're glorifying God. They're excited. I got to tell you a quick story. You all look like you need a little story. I'm using, I'm not sure if I should tell this story, but I'm going to tell the story. Quite some time ago, there was a person that I knew who was maybe to be characterized as a grumbler and a complainer. Glass half empty. Is that the way you say it? The negative, every negative about everything I could ever imagine. And I just thought, this is crazy. And so I, left one room where I was able to talk to people about the gospel who didn't understand the gospel before. And it was almost like you could see the light bulbs turning on. I mean, it was just a high point in my Christian life. And it was just like that. that this, was, this is so much fun to be able to help people understand what it means to have Christ's righteousness credited to you. What does that mean? And they wanted to know. And it was just awesome. And then I walked into another room. It may have been this room before a service started. And I saw the grumbler, complainer person, and I said, you'll never guess what just happened. And the person said, what? I said, I was just able, a room filled with people, most of them who didn't understand the gospel, and they wanted to hear, and they wanted to learn, and it was amazing, and, and T's were being crossed, and the I's dotted, and it was like the lights were turning on. And I'll confess to you, I was probably up to no good. I figured, we'll see how this goes. Next words, grumbling and complaining about something else. And I thought, I got nothing. What do believers do? I mean, it's the one thing. I've got a lot of things to grumble and complain about, right? I do grumble and complain. We all do. We live in a broken world. We live broken lives. But the one thing that helps us and kind of shakes us out of our stupor, these people weren't perfect. These people weren't living perfect lives with perfect circumstance. But when you hear about God saving people, their eternal destinies changed, what do you do if you're a believer? You put down the grumbling and complaining at least for a millisecond and you say, may God be praised. God is good. God is great. A miracle has happened. That's what we do. That's what they're doing here. What a way to help us with our difficulties. Okay, verse 20 goes on to say, there is a problem. This is, this is kind of weird. This is going to be a weird problem. Just wait and see. I, I, you heard it here. It's going to be strange. Luke gives us details. And they said to him, you see, brother, Speaking to Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there are many, many Jews who've become Christians, in other words. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So many Jewish Christians have been told false accusations that the Apostle Paul is anti-law. The technical word for that, if you want some theology, it's antinomian. So he's anti-law, he's antinomian, he's anti-Moses, he's anti-Jewish, he's anti-Jewish heritage. And so, you know, it's great to be a Christian, but whatever you do, you know, once those letters come out, Paul's letters, don't read them. 
because he's really actually no friend. That's, that's the accusation that's being made. And I'll let you know, it's, it's a common accusation leveled against people who are clear about the gospel. It's not true, but it's a common accusation. Here's the proposed solution, which maybe, maybe this is the weird part. At least it struck me as kind of odd. Verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. Paul, here's what we want you to do. Here's our solution. James and his leadership, they're, they're the leaders. Here's what they want him, want him to do. We have four men who are under a vow. We're not told what kind of vow. Uh, must have been some kind of Old Testament like Nazarite like kind of vow, like in Numbers 19. Okay, um, then it says in verse 24, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their t- expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So here's what we want you to do. What we want you to do is even pay the offering, go with them, uh, acknowledge Jewish customs. You are a Jew after all, and you're in Jerusalem. Temple's still here. It hasn't been devastated yet. And so you can just go along with these things, and then they're all going to know that you're not anti-Semitic, you're not anti-law, you're not anti-Moses. You're willing to acknowledge these things. That's what they ask. Verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That was, that was Acts 15 stuff. We already learned about all that stuff in Acts 15. So we're not going to ask Gentiles to observe Jewish law, in effect, to become Jewish. Uh, that's not what we're going to do, but to be sensitive toward Jews if they're living in that area. But Paul, could you just do these things? so as to not have these false accusations stick, in other words. Ever so quickly, I know we've got to keep this moving, but as a reminder, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is very, 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 very clear. If you think for a millisecond about telling non-Jews they need to become Jewish, to be accepted by God, Like they have to be circumcised. Remember what Paul says in Galatians? I know we probably shouldn't say it in church. But he says, I would just want them to be emasculated. That's how how against Paul is to that idea. Okay? That's Galatians chapter 5 verse 12. So they're not going to compromise there. They're not going to try to get Gentiles to act like Jews. But these people are already Jews. Living in a Jewish world with Jewish customs. They don't have to deny the faith. But could you just observe these things? It'll go a long way, in other words. Would you flex? Verse 26 says, When Paul took the men, and the next, then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Why would Paul do this? To silence false accusations? Did Paul have to do this to be right with God? Never. Never, ever, 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 ever. Not as a new covenant believer. The label that theologians would use for this is the label ideophra. In other words, things indifferent. Ideophra. 
By now, as a new covenant believer, Christ is his high priest. Christ brings fulfillment to all of these things. You know what? But I can do this in an indifferent sort of way to fit in, to silence the critics for a time. That's what's going on here. That's why I said flex. He's being flexible. It's his liberty, liberty to be flexible. Here's what one commentator said. Paul never obliged Jews to leave off circumcision or observance of the Mosaic ordinances. For such people, observing these ceremonies was a matter of Christian liberty, Romans 14. Paul was steadfastly opposed to requiring Gentiles to keep these particular commands, but he left it to the conscience of the Jewish believers whether to continue or discontinue their observance, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's flexing. He could do that. 27 says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, the Roman province Asia that is, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Not like at an ordination service either, right? They laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. So he's anti-Jew, he's anti-law, and he's anti-temple. Help! we got to stop this guy. If he were anti-the people, anti-the law, and anti-the place, the temple, would it be wrong? It actually would be wrong. It would be wrong. But the reality is he's not anti-the people. He's not anti the law, and he's not anti the place, but please hear me on this. When you're a Christian believing in Christ and are clear about what Christ did in bringing fulfillment, you will be misunderstood. You will be heard by some and misrepresented by some as saying, oh, he's anti-Jew. He's anti-law. He's anti-temple. And Christians, in one sense, think about this with me. This is really important. In one sense, you see why people would come to this kind of conclusion, right? You see why people would come to this kind of conclusion because the Bible says that there's neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. So it's, it's not, you don't have to become a Jew. Well, that might be heard as anti-Jew. It's not anti-Jew. But it might be heard that way. Otherwise, how about Jesus in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. So it's for all people. It's not Jewish special. But it doesn't exclude the Jews. It includes them. So you might be heard that way. Or how about you might be accused of being anti-law because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but he did say something else. What? I came to fulfill the law. These these things have been fulfilled, right? So you might be misunderstood if you say, you know what? Christ fulfilled the law. Or you might be misunderstood furthermore regarding the temple Because in the New Covenant era, post-resurrection ascension, the temple is the church, read 1 Corinthians, or even individual believers. And, And so we don't have the temple structure anymore. We don't need the temple structure anymore. And this, no, it's no wonder people get confused. So the old covenant system is anticipating with its kings and with its priests and with its temple and with its sacrifices, awaiting things like the ultimate lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, that all of this was anticipating. 
right? The temple, the unique dwelling of God, special, important, we're not against it, but you know what? It was meant to come to a conclusion because there's the ultimate temple, Jesus, and the body of Christ, the church, temple, and even as believers, we're referred to as temple. So you see, we're, we're pro-Old Covenant, pro-Jewish, pro-Old Testament, but not to have it last forever and confuse Old Covenant with New Covenant because then we have a different kind of religion. But it's common to have people misunderstand. So you should be aware of that as well. They misunderstood. They're misrepresenting him as well. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 2, off the top of my head, if you destroy this temple, I will what? I will rebuild it in three days. And if you read John 2, he's talking about himself, the unique dwelling of God. And that was scandalous and offensive to the people listening. Or how about in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus did prophesy that that temple right then and there, that one, is going to be destroyed. Not because Jesus is anti-Old Covenant, but Jesus is all about the one who fulfills it and it all comes to an end because it's always been anticipating the ultimate dwelling of God. So you can see how they could come to this conclusion and I belabored the point a little bit because I think people could misunderstand me and they could misunderstand you just as they're being misunderstood and or misrepresented. Oh, just one more thing. Never believe a pastor when he says that, but (laughs) these accusations being leveled against Paul here do sound strangely familiar. Back in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, these are the accusations being made against Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Out of homage to who they lay their cloaks at his feet. A young man back then named Saul. Guess what goes around comes around. (laughs) He's been converted and now they're doing the same, essentially the same thing to him as he approvingly did through others to Stephen. Okay, let's move on. Verse 28 goes on to say, Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And if that's true, it is a capital offense under Jewish law. Verse 29 says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, Trophimus, excuse me, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. See, he did have Gentiles with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple which is a bad supposition (laughs) because he wouldn't have done that. Can I just say that supposing and then extrapolating and then spinning for the sake of one's agenda is bad? Can I say that? It needs to be said. And when Christians do it, these are unbelievers. They're acting like unbelievers. None of us are above it. 30 says, then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Should we read something theologically into that or not? I'm not sure. Some do, some don't. But it actually is an interesting observation that if Paul doesn't ever go back there, knowing the destruction is coming, AD 70, temple doors are closed. It's irrelevant now. Or maybe it's stated there because they just closed the doors. I'm not sure. 
But I do know 2 Corinthians one twenty says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So I do know that it's irrelevant. So maybe those doors are closed because that era is over. It's done. Not to be revisited. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that Roman official. His name is actually Claudius Lysus, Lysias, commander of a thousand soldiers, if he's the tribune of the cohort, powerful Roman individual, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 32 says, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Remember Agabus? Verse, then he goes on to say, he inquired who he was and what he had done. 34 says, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, the fortress of Antonia. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And that might sound familiar. If you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There's an uncanny similarity between some of these things happening. And then as we wrap this up, 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Surprise. So Paul must have asked in Greek. And the Roman official, are, 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 are you sophisticated? What? And that triggers a whole different thought. 38 says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Are you, are you that infamous insurrectionist put down by Felix but who escaped? Are you that guy? Apparently they all knew about that guy. 39 says, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. A citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. 40 says, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and if I were a movie screen on your television in the 80s or the 90s, it would say, to continue watching, please insert tape two. <laughs> but I am not a VHS tape or a screen, but we are going to stop there and hear the speech next time. Remember, all of this is 
He needed to go to Jerusalem, even though it's going to be bad because he needs to get from Jerusalem. He's going to call upon his Roman citizenship so that he can be tried ultimately in Rome. And they will go from Caesarea by the sea and he will take that Mediterranean cruise and he will go to Rome. And we will find at least initial fulfillment of Acts 1, 8 is what we will find. Please go away with who knows what kind of thoughts, but please go away with at least this thought. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and nothing will stop it. It's my paraphrase of Matthew 16. And so there's death in his crucifixion, but it didn't stop it because he was raised from the dead. And then what happens? And then his people come and they're persecuted, but by the grace of God, tenacious resolved, I'm going to get to Jerusalem so I can get to Rome no matter what, even though I know I'm promised by divine revelation it's going to go bad for me. Why do I do this? Why am I so bold? Because the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned me and because he said nothing will stop the building of the church. And so even if I die, I know it will go on at the hands of someone else, but I resolve to go there absolutely fearlessly, no matter what. Christ be praised for the good of people, for the glory of God. Makes me want to be bold. Makes me want to be a faithful proclaimer absolutely no matter what. And I hope it makes you want to be that way also. These are exciting times in the early church. Gospel gets to Rome. But we are called to preach Christ. We are called to preach Christ to anyone and everyone, knowing that some will respond positively with joy. A lot of that in the book of Acts. And some will respond negatively with hostility and animosity. A lot of that in the book of Acts. I'm so glad that we know this ahead of time. If it's the gospel, different responses. Just because somebody opposes it doesn't mean it's broken. To the glory of God, we tell the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of other people, for the good of our own souls, and for the glory of Christ who is worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for history. Thank you for biblical history, even this kind of history. Thank you for the fact that you use sinners like us in the world. We're thankful to know that we have a perfect Savior in Christ. We're thankful to be able to not boast in ourselves and our own achievements but to be able to boast, to be able to boast in Christ so that men and women and boys and girls can have hope beyond their funerals and a purpose for living in this life that transcends all other purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.